things going on at the moment, lots of ways in which the call to be disciples is being expressed and represented among us. The thing about being a disciple is that it's impossible to do it by yourself because at the very beginning, Jesus made it clear that he was calling people into a community that would join him on mission. That community looks very much like family as friends get together, blood and non-blood relatives, as it were, begin to connect with one another, and that community forms around the mission that Jesus is giving them. The Connections team met last week, uh, right around the time when others of you were just boldly and courageously trying to take on this building. We'll keep on wrestling it to the ground. And uh, the community there began to emerge, this Connections team of of various different people who are really committed to welcoming folks into the life of Apex. And so that'll emerge as a community on mission, very much like Friday Night Lights did this time last year. It's been just been careful steps in the same direction. The worship teams are beginning to discover and think through what it means to be communities on mission for them. The young people, the teenagers, I've been meeting with them over the last few weeks and they're beginning to really engage with this idea of gathering people around a common theme of mission. The boys, they really wanted to get into the idea of what it meant to be leaders. What, what can it be as, as young men to be leaders? And so one of the mentors and coaches, James Baldwin, is, is just walking along, alongside them and, and they're going to gather entrepreneurs and business owners from around the Dayton area. They're going to invite them for dinner. They're going to talk things through. And they're beginning, they're beginning to see this, this whole thing emerge with real enthusiasm and excitement. On Sundays, we're just as collaborative as we are, as we are on other days as the network of communities, as it were, spreads out and unfolds across the Miami Valley area. And so those of you who are new to us, you might find this part of the the time a little bit strange. I've got a couple of things to introduce to you. Here, I'm going to need a couple of people to help me get that to the back of uh, this aisle in a moment. In here, there are carts like this in various parts of the building, usually at the top of the aisles. In here, we we have one of these. This is a Bible, and it's made out of paper. It's incredible, it's a whole new thing. People are really getting into them. Um, I know most of you have Bibles on your phones, and so the digital version of the Bible is the one that you're most used to. This one is for people who want to have a book in their hands where the writing's so small you can't read it. Okay, so it just makes you feel more holy and more kind of righteous, because, you know, obviously it's impossible to read that text. I mean, I've got glasses on, and it's like, what? Um, So, there's that, and uh, what we've discovered, as we've been doing a little bit of research, is that um, if you doodle, you remember more and you retain more. About 35% more retention takes place in people who doodle. And so, in these, we've got doodle pads for adults and young people, and we've got Crayola crayons. I mean, you can do the full multicolored thing if you want to. It's awesome. And uh, we've got pens and we've got legal pads. And of course, we've got connection cards. Again, if you want to connect, you can go straight to the website. There's lots of ways to uh, connect digitally. 
But for those of you like me, who like papers and pencils and stuff like that, you know, me, I was there obviously in the ark with Noah, um, this stuff me feels somewhat more, as it were, accessible and real. So, that's that. I'm going to take those off there and I'm going to ask somebody to come and help me get this to the top of that aisle over there because in a moment it's also going to hold the communion elements because we're going to have communion at the end of are you going to take that all by yourself no here, here comes here comes Jeff he's going to help you too have you got, have you, look at you you're awesome uh, at the top of that aisle up there please thanks thank you Esau. that's wonderful okay so Last week, we began the journey of engaging with the story of Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges of Israel. The children of Israel have left Egypt. They've conquered the promised land. They've begun to spread out, but they've become somewhat lackadaisical in their faith. They've they've drifted from the Lord. And as they drift from the Lord, they drift from the umbrella of his protection. And when you drift from the umbrella of your protection in a world full of enemies, you tend to get wet. And so the enemies of the people of God have come intermittently into the land. They've swarmed like locusts and they have devoured everything. They've devoured the crops that have been carefully cultivated by the people of God. They've taken away their flocks and their herds. They've killed people and they've subjugated the children of Israel into a feeling of fearfulness and continuous scarcity. At the beginning of the story last week, we saw Gideon threshing out wheat in a wine press because he was afraid that someone would see him and steal what it was that he was producing for his family. The angel of the Lord came and spoke to him and began this great journey in the life of Gideon of replacing his fear with faith. You'll remember last week we said that the world, it's only got one L, the world produces fear. The Word, the Word of God, produces faith. And as the presence of the Lord, His character is love, as the presence of the Lord expresses His perfect love in the heart of a believer, of course, it drives away fear. But of course, you have to replace fear with something. And so what are you going to replace it with? More fear? No. What you do is as God's love tells you that you're cared for, you're loved, you're protected and preserved, he's the one who's standing with you, fighting for you, cheering you on. As you receive that truth and fear diminishes, so God will speak to you. And the scriptures say, faith comes by hearing. Now, this is long before that scripture was written in Romans 10, 17. But Gideon learned the truth of it. He learned the truth that when God speaks, faith is generated in our hearts. And so the fears that just clamored 
in the inner life of Gideon began to be replaced by the faith that God wanted him to stand in. We talked a little bit, did we not, about the way in which our world feels as though it's defined by anxiety. These anxiety algorithms that run the social media nights. And the Apolites, they're all around us. Those social media nights, they're, they're ready to swarm us and devour us like locusts. And the principal means of their devouring is fear. We can rebrand fear as stress or anxiety. It's fear. And it's fear usually generated by a sense of not having enough not quite being enough, not quite having enough, not quite being able to access enough. And so fear is, if you like, the backdrop of our world as it was of Gideon's world. And today, as we engage in our Discovery Bible component of this collaborative experience, which is wrestling with the Word of God, we're going to look at the way in which God whittled down the people that Gideon called to respond to the presence of the Midianites. Now, one of the things that we say about the Discovery Bible component of our time is that we're bringing no external information to the text that's not in the text. And the reason for that is that we want to maintain a power balance between us. But of course, one of my roles as teacher and coach is to make sure that you hear certain things that are necessary to kind of create the framework in which we're operating. We want to operate in a way that doesn't mean that, that we're there to demonstrate our Bible knowledge. That's not the issue. What we're doing now is to listen to what it is that God is saying to us as he reveals or highlights something in the passage. Now, it may be that you're not familiar with that as a, as a practice in your life. It may not be a discipline that, that has kind of been part of your life, been integrated into it. And so the way to begin is just to read the passage and say, what is it that interests me? What is it that highlights itself to me? Now, in time, you'll begin to recognize that what God's doing is he's working on your mental synapses he's working in your emotions and feelings and he's just stirring you to attend to his voice by the things that he's highlighting and of course once we've discovered what it is that God is saying to us and we've shared it and articulated it with other people so we have to come to the second question the second question which always follows the question what is God saying to you the second question is, and what am I going to do about it? And so before we leave here today, I'm going to encourage you to make intentions. Decide what it is that you're going to do on the basis of what it is that you've heard this week. And it may be a tiny thing, and you think, well, I've got mountains all around me. What is this tiny thing going to do for me in the midst of all that I'm facing? Jesus says this, mountains move with faith 
as small as a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. And so that's what God's in the business of doing. He's in the business of speaking to us and having us receive that as a word that creates faith. And faith is never an internal mental thing. It's something that is demonstrated in our daily behavior. And that faith moves those mountains. Now, just one thing before we get into it. Uh, we're gonna get into Gideon's 300. And, uh, and some of you, some young people have, have said to me, wow, so did Gideon and the story kind of borrow the whole thing about Sparta and the 300 and you know what I mean? And they're like going, you know, maybe, maybe the Bible's just kind of borrowed that. Yeah? And then you remember the movie and the abs. Come on. Everybody remembers the abs. And so there are the Spartan warriors led by King Leonidas. 600 years after Gideon. 600 years after Gideon. 1150-ish BC is the story of Gideon. 480 BC is the story of Leonidas and the 300 standing against the hordes of Persia. Xerxes, the king of Persia, is mentioned in the Bible, but 600 years later. And so if anybody's doing any borrowing, it's that lot. Yeah? Okay. I just wanted to make sure everybody heard that, because it's like, wait a minute. Haven't I had 300 warriors? I mean, you know, and we all assume that Hollywood's awesome, and so they got it right. So, um, so let's, look at, um, let's look at the passage together, and um, let's see what God will say to us today. Uh, we're going to get straight into Judges chapter 7. Easy to find if you've got a digital version. It'll come up on the screen. I'll read it to you, and then we'll quietly read it to ourselves and just ask this question, what's highlighted in the passage to me? And then we're going to share that in a moment. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, 
with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Okay, let's just have a couple of minutes. Just be quiet. We'll put the text up again. What is it, what is it that God's saying to you today? What's highlighted to you in the passage? Okay, uh, we're going to do this. We're going to share with one other person near us what it is that's highlighted in the passage. Whilst you're doing that, Jim, I think, is going to come and help me with this microphone. And I need somebody else to come and help me with this microphone. Have I got anybody from this side of the congregation? Come on. Stephanie, grab that microphone over there. That's super. Thank you. So just share with one another what is it that's highlighted in the, in the text and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to see what it is that God's saying to us. Go ahead. Make sure both of you, make sure both of you share. Make sure that both of you share what it is he's seeing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Jim and Steph are going to help. Just put your hand up. If uh, there's someone right there, Jim, right there in the back with his black t-shirt on. Did you want to say something there, sir? Oh, no, he was just, it's like an auction. If you move your hand, you're going to get sold the item. Anyone over here or anyone right over there, look, see that one? Now, you have to say who you are, and, uh, and then once you've said who you are, then we'll, uh, we'll do the next thing. So, Steph's got somebody right there. Hello, I'm Eric. Um, the, one of the first things, 
surrendering to whatever God wanted him to do. Cool. So, so change to surrender to God. Is that right? Is that, is that about right? Thank you. That's excellent. Right here. Um, I'm Joan, and the warning against pride stuck out to me. Say, say more. So God's warning, um, he's saying, if you go in with too many people, you'll have a tendency to boast. Right. So, so the, there's a warning against pride, which is we, I did it. Yeah? Is that right? Is that good? Awesome. Good. What about over here? Yeah, right there. And Jim, if you can be moving to the next person with their hand up. Oh, right there. Okay. Oh, in a minute, though. Not yet, CJ. Uh, I'm Elizabeth, but this is for daughter Haley. She was questioning why, or maybe the significance of why laughing like a dog was the ones that he wanted to Interesting. Yeah, and, and was that you, Haley, who was asking? That's a great question. Great question. Why lapping? Do you want me to tell you, Haley? Yeah? You sure? Okay. So, lots and lots of people have read this passage for many, many years, and they've tried to work out what that thing was. And the best answer that I've heard, reading all of the different commentaries, is that if you get down on your two knees and stick your bottom in the air and drink from the water like this, you can't see an enemy coming. But if you get down like this, can you still see me? And you do this, you're not only taking water, but you're showing that you're the kind of alert person who's going to see an enemy coming. Is that good? You feel good about that? Now you know. I think we should have a round of applause for Haley for asking that brilliant question, don't you think? It's great. CJ. My name is CJ. Um, I thought it was interesting what caught my attention is that the ones he chose, they're using the, the comparison of a dog as a good thing. Yeah, oh, I see. You uh, mean so like dogs are normally a bad thing? They usually, oh, you're, you're like a dog. Yeah. But in this case, it's a good thing. <laughs> yes. So dogs are awesome. Yeah. And anybody who's met my Barnabas, who's in my study right now, knows that dogs are awesome. Over here. Any more? Right there. Where's, where's Steph just been to? Oh, you, okay, Steph. I'm, I'm trying to yeah. run real fast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's kind of fun, isn't it, running around? So we've got, we got this gentleman here whose name I know, but I'm not going to give it away right now. Go. Well, ours no, between... You have to tell us your name. Oh, John. Yeah. Um, between the three of us, we thought the whole thing with the dogs laughing was, at first glance, it seems sort of random and ridiculous. Yeah. But God's saying, look, I'm, I'm working it out. Yeah. Just have faith and follow me. Yeah. It doesn't have to make sense to you. 
Yeah. But, but do it. That's good. Yeah. So, so following doesn't have to make sense at first. Is that good? Is that, is that what we're saying? Excellent. Over here, right there. Uh, I'm Ricky. The thing that I've always thought was really interesting with this, like the same commentary that you were mentioning on why uh, they wanted the soldiers to drink the way they did, it seems weird if the army that he had was this amazing army of 22,000 that only 300 knew the appropriate way to drink water. <laughs> so I was curious, like, in the future, did he teach the soldiers this is the correct way to drink the water? Because I'm curious, like, if he went to battle with all 22, how would they have still lost because only three of them knew how to drink water the appropriate way? Well, I mean... Seriously, when you go to a, a, a water fountain and you see somebody with their mouth over the nozzle, it, it kind of makes you think, that's a social media night. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, it makes me feel that way. I mean, I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to do any of that. Yeah, I think that's great. So, uh, yeah. So, did anybody notice that this is all anti-machismo? Anybody notice that? If you are trembling with fear, you can go home. I'm glad it wasn't 30,000 Americans, because they'd say, oh, what? You definitely wouldn't get 22,000 leaving at that point, I can promise you. Maybe 22, maybe not 22,000. Over there. Um, the emphasis on the amount of people that you have doesn't matter as long as you're fighting for God. Okay, just... just Tell us your name, first of all. Oh, Jacob Blackburn. Jacob, okay. And then tell us, tell us what you're saying there. G give me a bit more. Well, he started off with 22,000, and he kept like decreasing the number with seemingly arbitrary ways until he got to 300, and it was speci specifically to prove the point that the amount of numbers don't matter. What matters is the faith. Got it. Excellent. So what matters is the faith not the human strength yeah is that about right awesome one more from over here Andrew, that's your second week, Andrew. Yep. Good lad, well done. I thought it was uh, it was interesting that the leader was picked uh, in a way that was very like inhuman. It was like it was a way only God would choose. He was the weakest of his clan. He wasn't brave. But then these soldiers were picked in a way that kind of fits with the human mind. They were the, they were going to be the bravest, the most faithful, uh, the most alert. So I thought it was interesting that. The contrast between the leader and the soldiers. Interesting. That's, did, did everybody get that? He's got the deepest voice in the world <laughs> for a 15-year-old. For a I, I think you've got a future in commercials, by the way. Do you need air conditioning in your home? <laughs> I have a voice that will sell that product to you. You're awesome, Andrew. Yeah, so... What, did everybody hear, with, was the decibel register, you know, I mean, was that too low for some of you? Anyway, what I heard Andrew say was this. It's interesting, isn't it, that God 
is able to identify a leader as the person that's the weakest, the least significant, the most fearful in one set of circumstances. And then in another set of circumstances, he chooses people that are obviously braver than the 32,000 other people that were there. They were more alert than the 10,000 that were kneeling down to. So, so God is able to use both strength and weakness as long as it's surrendered to his purpose. Is that basically what it is that you're saying there? That's a great word. A round of applause for Andrew because that's awesome. So weakness and strength surrendered to God is the key. Awesome. Okay, round of applause for all of our participants today. I think we're good. Thanks to Jim and Steph. Now, we're trying to work out how to, to do this. There'll be different ways in which we'll express this kind of collaborative process of hearing what it is that God is saying to us. But I'm pretty certain that what it is that God is wanting us to do is to together work out what it is that God is saying to us so that we can get to this point of hearing him and putting it into practice. And so some weeks we'll do much more DBC, which we just did then, than we'll do other weeks. And then other weeks, as I just hear the Lord and try to wrestle through what it is that the Lord is saying to all of us and to me, other weeks I'll have maybe more of a percentage of the time that we spend in working on the word. This week, I'm gonna spend a bit more time looking at the next passage, and your help in looking at the first part of the passage has been enormously important. I'm gonna continue reading from Judges chapter seven. I'm gonna start from verse nine. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord is has given the Midianites camp 
into your hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers ahead of him throughout the country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing, amazing story. So, what is it that the Lord is wanting to underline? What he's wanting to underline is this. The replacement of fear with faith is a process, not simply an event. Everything in your life that grows to significance will be a process and not simply an event. But the process will be created by a series of events stitched together under God's gracious hand, producing the process of growth, maturity, strength, and transformation. And that transformation may be gradual and slow until it gets to a yield point, and at the yield point, you see victory. Or it could be that at each, my phone, my, my watch is talking to me, it's so weird when they do that. It could be that at each step of the way, you sense that victory. But whichever way, whichever way, the key is persistence. Now, the Lord met Gideon at the very beginning. We saw that with the angel. And he said to him, Hail, man of valor. Hail, mighty warrior. Gideon didn't feel like a mighty warrior. He was hiding in a wine press at the time. He didn't feel like a man of valor. He didn't feel as though he could lead anybody into any significant breakthroughs in their life. And yet God spoke to him in terms of the future. 
And so God was saying to Gideon, I'm defining your identity according to the future that I have for you, according to the destiny of your life, not the circumstances in which you find yourself. You're not defined by your trauma. I'll say that again. You're not defined by your trauma. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your circumstances. You will be affected by them, but it's not your identity. It's not the thing that defines you. The thing that defines you is the calling of God upon your life that is based upon his gracious declaration that you are his child. And on the on the basis of that gracious declaration that you are his child. He has a destiny. He has a destination. He has a future for you, and it's that future that is your identity. Men and women of valor. Nudge your person next to you. Men and women of valor. That's, that's us. Come on, do it. Men and women of valor, they're all around you. They've got victory in their lives. They've got future circumstances that they will be able to see the transforming hand of God working through them to bring about. Gideon began the journey by hearing the destination. Diffidently, he listen to what it was that God wanted him to do. He, he had to step away from the idolatry of his family. God said, take down the altar of Baal. Take down the, the pole that celebrates Asherah. Take them down. Make a new sacrifice, a sacrifice that I'm calling you into. And just be, just be confident that I'm okay with this. And, and Gideon does that under cover of darkness with the few people that would stand with him, the 10 servants that would stand with him. And the next day, his father stands in the gap and, and helps him. His, his human father stands in the gap and helps him, stops the townspeople from killing him. And so Gideon grows with a, with a sense of confidence. And he calls the people of the northern tribes of Israel, Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, the, the, the region that for us who've read the New Testament would know is, is the Galilee, the Galilee around, around the Sea of Galilee. He blows a trumpet and calls them to arms. And then he asks the Lord for a special gift, the gift of, of confirming that he's going to do this. He, he gives him the fleece that's wet in the morning when the ground is dry. And then he says, well, if you could just do it the other way around, then I'd feel even better. And the Lord, in his graciousness, because... Gideon is breaking the law by doing this. The Lord, the Lord says in the law, you're not allowed to test me. But, but I'll do this for you, Gideon. So don't worry about asking the Lord to do stuff. Don't worry about whether it's in the rules or not. Can you make the fleece dry and the ground wet? Sure. So Gideon is now able to feel as though you know, I've made, I've made one step and then I've made another step and, and now here, here I am with this step 
And he's got 32,000 soldiers. And the Lord says, yeah, I want about 1%. I want about 1% of that. The 99%, if, if, we, if we have that many people, I mean, I know that Midian is probably 100,000 people right now, but, you know, you'll take credit for it. You see, the thing about grace is, if it really is grace, which simply means gift, if it really is the gift of God, then we can't take credit for it. So this is what the scriptures say. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, it'll tell you this, that we are saved by grace through faith, and this faith is what? A gift of God so that no one can boast. So Gideon has been, has been in the process of God replacing the fear with faith. And little by little, the foundation of his life that is so insecure and so full of anxiety has been broken up and has been shifted and, and displaced and supplanted by faith as, as, the love of God, as the love of God casts out his fear and then the word of God speaks to the place where the fear was and faith begins to emerge. And so more and more, Gideon is beginning to stand on a, on a foundation of faith. But here's the thing. If you start taking credit for your faith, you're a fool. Because the faith is a gift as well. So that none of us can boast. Because the whole point is, God can do it and we can't. If we could do it, then surely God would have given us some way to do it. The big changes in your life, the big transformations, the big healings, the big restorations cannot happen by your strength. If they happen, they're a gift of God so that none can boast. And as you grow, just like Gideon, in the knowledge that your foundation of faith is getting deeper and stronger and, and more stable, you will become a person who is more and more aware of the grace of God, not more and more aware of how much faith you have. I wish I had more faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, sure. But this is the point, you see. This is why it's a mustard seed size faith that can move a mountain. Because it's not us moving the mountain. Hello? Anybody in the room? It's not us moving the mountain, silly. It's God moving the mountain. He made the mountain. He can move the mountain. So what is it that gives God access to move? The, I mean, God's God. He can do the thing with the mountain. He's moving mountains all the time, I promise you. He's doing stuff all the time that nobody else can do because he's God. But if there's a specific thing in your life that is the mountain, 
the Midianite hordes. Your addiction to social media. The Amalekites. Your inability to escape the shadows of your family and past. Whatever the mountain, it's God who moves the mountain and he wants us to partner with him in the simple surrender of faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. What is it that God's saying to you today? Here's the thing. I sometimes fear for folks who leave a gathering on Sunday. Not because I think that the devil's got a special target on them or anything like that. I fear this, that they hear God speak, but they build their life on sand because they don't do anything about it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus leaves the most important parable in the greatest sermon the world has ever heard to explain to his disciples what it is that's going to be the big game changer. He says there's a wise person, there's a foolish person. The foolish person goes to church every week and listens to me all the time. The foolish person is listening to me. The foolish person is not ignoring me. We think that that's the fool. It's not the fool. They're just lost. The foolish person is hearing Jesus speak all the time. But their life is going to get washed away by the storms. Why? Because they don't put it into practice. They don't do anything with it. So why do we have response time at the end of the service? And you know what it's like here. We, I've explained it to you millions of times. Not millions. I'm good at exaggerating. I've explained it on a number of occasions. We're made with bodies, not just a mind. Most of our communication, human to human, is nonverbal. Therefore, we have to assume that the way that God communicates to us is mostly nonverbal. It's what you see, it's what you feel, it's what you sense, it's that heaviness, it's that lightness, it's that joy, it's that peace. These are the things that God is speaking to you. They're nonverbal communication. He's made us to be, to be in communion with him, to be connected to him. And so our prayer to him is mostly nonverbal. What are you doing with the instrument of prayer, your body? Just getting up and saying, I don't want that, but I do want that. Just getting up and saying, I don't even know how to articulate this God. I've come to this place so many times. I've come to the bottom of this mountain so many times. I don't know how to construct or articulate the prayer. God says, that's fine. Use your body. Start moving. He says to Gideon, Okay, Gideon, it's time. 
if you're still a little bit afraid, I've got something for you. Don't you love God? I mean, he's had the fleece, he's had an angel, he's had his, he's had his offering vaporized by the, by the staff that is in the hand of the angel. I mean, you know, whoa. And you've seen miracles and you've seen transformations and you've seen salvations in your life. And you say, you know, I, I probably shouldn't still be like this. So I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to come forward at the end of the service because everybody will be nodding and say, yeah, I told you. If you're still just a little bit afraid, then get up off your backside and go into the camp of Midian. So Gideon takes his buddy along with him, Pura. The guy's just had a dream. Now there's something significant about this in Deuteronomy, in Matthew 18, in First and Second Corinthians. There is a theme that connects the way in which God establishes a truth in your life. And this is what he says. Things are established by two or three witnesses. Things are established by two or three witnesses. In other words, God knows that for us to really get to the place of security, for us to get to really the place of, of being able to stand with strength in the strength that, the God, that God provides, in the faith that he's generated in our hearts by his word, we need to establish a truth through two or three witnesses. So, in the gathering of God's people described in First and Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14 is a great place to go, Paul says two or three prophets will speak and the others will wait. Why? Because the two or three is the principle. Things are established by two or three witnesses. And so in our lives, what God will do is to give us multiple witnesses, multiple words. He'll give us a word from Scripture. We'll be playing a country song and we'll go, whoa, is that God? You'll be, you'll be hanging out with your friends and you'll just hear a conversation. You'll go, whoa, what was that? Somebody will send you a little encouraging word and, and you'll know it's the Lord. Things are established by two or three witnesses. And for Gideon to just get to the point where he can lead the people of God, he needs just one more witness and God knows it. And Gideon in his heart knows it, but he doesn't want to tell anyone. And he goes down into the camp. And there's a guy who says, whoa, man, I ate way too much pizza. That dream was crazy. Now, it's really interesting the way that the dream is constructed because it's a barley loaf. Now, there are, there are different grains at the time of Gideon. And the most important, the most significant, the, the, the highest kind of priced, the, the, the grain with the greatest prestige is, is wheat. Probably first cultivated right there in the Jordan Rift Valley near, near Jericho. 
but has become this, this thing that symbolizes affluence and, and strength and, 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 and prosperity. Israel, they don't represent that. They're barley. So it's kind of reinforcing the prejudice of the Midianite who thinks that the Israelites are lower than him. He says, you'll never, I saw a barley loaf. So we go, yeah. Barley loaf, yeah. A barley loaf, and you'll never guess what the barley loaf did. It rolled into the camp and it squashed my tent. And the other guy goes, no. There's a, there's a whole bunch of barley loaves out there. And we know they're not like us. White wheat sandwich loaves. This can mean nothing else. I mean, it could have meant lots of things, couldn't it? I mean, seriously. This can mean nothing else than we're all going to die. That's the Lord working to confirm that Gideon's on the right track. So, how many people have got big things in their life? you know, need to happen or change. One person, two, three, four, five, six. Well, okay, so everybody can pray for those six people. Why are they everybody else? Everybody's got stuff, haven't they? Everybody's got stuff. And that stuff creates fear. And what's going to overcome that stuff? The Lord. And what is the channel that the Lord will use in your life? Faith. And where does faith come from? Hearing. And how are, how are things established by how many? Two or three witnesses. So, if the Lord has begun to speak to you about a thing in your life, then assume that he has more for you. It's like a box of Kleenex. Keep taking out the next word until you get to the bottom of the box. He might have way more than two or three. The Lord is in the business of working through us to change the world. From the very beginning, he created human beings to be his partners in the mission of love to the world. He's not changed that plan. He's not changed that, that desire. He's not changed that way that he's made us. And the way that he works through us is by faith. And the way that faith is generated is by listening. And you've heard God speak to you today. And if you need to ask him to speak to you again, he will. How do I know? Because he's called the word. That's his name. Everybody with me now? We got it? Okay. This is so important that I wanted to preach this bit because I think it's just a key, key component in our lives. God will create a foundation that means that you're the wise person. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The Puritans, 300 years ago, said what you need in your life to supplant 
a little fear is a greater fear. And of course, they're correct in that. But what is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? Is it a cringing kind of recognition that he's able to squash you like a gnat? No. The fear of the Lord is this, that you go to him to hear what he says and you put it into practice. Because the wise man, says Jesus, the wise person, the person who fears the Lord, the person who's put the fear of the Lord first in their life, the wise person, as Jesus has taken all of the lines of revelation in the Old Testament and now brought them together in the teaching and the preaching of the new covenant, Jesus says, the wise person is the person that answers two questions. What is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? That is the wise person who's living in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is way better than the fear of the world. So we're going to move into a time of communion now. It's going to be an opportunity for us to kind of settle in our hearts what it is that God is saying to us to review again what he's saying. And it's a time for us to settle in our hearts the intentions that we're making as we hear God speak to us. And as we hear him speak and, we've make, and, and we make these decisions about what we're going to do today and tomorrow and the day after, the Lord is going to take those and he's going to allow that little mustard seed of faith to be enough for him to work through.